Hello, Tolkien Professor here. Today's podcast is a little bit unusual. I'm not answering any particular questions today. Instead, I just wanted to talk about some general issues relating to the answering of particular questions. I'll explain that more in a minute. First, I have an announcement. The Chaucer article that I've been writing, which I've explained before was the only thing standing between me and real productivity, is finally done. 10,000 words, 100 endnotes, and a 10-page bibliography in the mail. So, editors of the Chaucer Review, in the microscopically small chance that you are listening to this, I hope you like it. In the meantime, I'm free. I'm back to work on Hobbit Lecture number 4, and I hope to have it done within the next week. Now, anyway, on to the meat of this podcast. Basically, what I want to do today is ease my own conscience with a couple explanations and disclaimers. I'm talking about my conscience as a teacher. There are a few things that I need to make sure that I've explained so that nobody is misunderstanding what I'm doing, or at least what I'm trying to do here. I'll start with a disclaimer. I am not claiming at any point to give definitive answers to any questions, nor to say exactly what Tolkien himself thought on all subjects. Based on what I've read, I suspect that some of my listeners have come away from my intro lecture, How to Read Tolkien and Why, with some misunderstandings in this regard. In that lecture, I talk about how Tolkien would and would not have liked his stories to be read. What he didn't want was for people who read them not to read them as stories. He didn't want people simply cutting them up into pieces or reading them as merely a veiled commentary on contemporary events or, or, or scrutinizing them only as a way to analyze the author himself. I have set out, therefore, to read Tolkien's work as he would like it read, meaning that I am reading and thinking about his stories carefully as stories. As you've seen from my lectures, I like to read the text closely and to take them seriously, looking at the patterns of images and ideas that come clear when you read carefully, and which lead in turn to a clearer understanding of the main ideas and themes that run through the stories. In doing this, I do think and hope that I am reading the stories as Tolkien would want them to be read. That is, I am respecting and enjoying them as stories and hoping to help others see how complex, powerful, and fascinating these stories are. However, what I am not doing is saying that my readings of these books are either definitive or comprehensive. There may be many points at which my analysis is shaky, where I've missed important points that point to a different reading, or where my conclusions suffer from faulty logic. There are also many other things to be said about these books that I'm not going to say. Even though I am going into a lot of detail in my lectures, I am very far from exhausting these books, because there are always different questions that one could ask that I don't have time to answer. Most importantly, though, I am not claiming to channel Tolkien himself from beyond the grave. I don't know for sure whether Tolkien himself would agree with the things I have to say about his books. In fact, I'd be rather surprised if he would agree with me on every point. That fact doesn't bother me at all. For one thing, as I'll talk about more in a bit, the whole idea of what Tolkien himself really meant is a more complicated one than it might seem at first. Now, I do hope that, if Tolkien were still alive and could listen to my lectures, he wouldn't be disgusted and say I've totally missed the boat, but I do want to make sure that I haven't given the impression that I am somehow proclaiming the authoritative, authorial truth here. Okay, now on to the bigger subject that I want to talk about. As I've been receiving and thinking about the questions that some of you have been submitting to me, I have decided that I need to sit down and talk a bit about what we are doing when we're talking about this stuff. The majority of questions I receive are not about Tolkien stories themselves. Most of them are about Tolkien's secondary world in general. You'll remember from the intro lectures that Tolkien called the world invented by a storyteller, the world in which the stories take place, a secondary world. 
Tolkien believed that a good story need not be realistic in the sense of taking place in a world exactly like the real primary world. It's okay for the world of the story to contain magic or other marvelous elements so long as that world is sufficiently consistent internally to allow readers to enter it imaginatively without too much strain. As I said, most of the questions I receive that people really want to hear about are questions not about the main story, but about the secondary world itself. This you can see quite clearly just by the two Q&A podcasts I've already made. What is Orc society like? Who is Tom Bombadil, really? These are questions not about the story, but about the background world of the stories. Now, these kinds of questions always come up, a lot, and I have no problem with them. They seem to me a perfectly natural consequence of the excellent work that Tolkien has done in his act of sub-creation, as he calls it. I think the fact that people have these questions is a great compliment to Tolkien's invention. But I do want to think through this a little bit and make sure that we all know what it means to think about and answer questions about Tolkien's secondary world. Now, I'd break these secondary world questions down into three categories based on how they're answered. The first category are questions that can be answered by reading the main books carefully. Let me give an example. I recently got an email from Andrea in Louisville, Kentucky, who asked for some clarification of the relationship between Ungoliant the great evil spirit in spider form who helps Morgoth take down the great trees of Valinor in the Silmarillion, and Shelob, the spider who poisons Frodo and to whom Sam gives a whooping she won't soon forget, and the Mirkwood spiders who capture the dwarves and the Hobbit. Now this is a very good question, and it hinges on a very natural misunderstanding of a line in Shelob's description, where Tolkien calls her the last child of Ungoliant to trouble the unhappy world. If Shelob is the last of Ungoliant's descendants, where the heck did these other evil, sentient spiders, apparently capable of language, come from? Are they not related to Ungoliant, too? Now, the answer to this question, as I suggested, is one that is right there in the text. When Tolkien calls Shelob Ungoliant's last child, he doesn't mean just that she is the last descendant of Ungoliant to survive. Rather, she is actually Ungoliant's daughter, given birth to by Ungoliant herself way back in the First Age. But whoa, one might say. If that were true, she'd have to be like thousands of years old. Yes, she is. Tolkien says in his description of Shelob's history in the Two Towers that she had dwelt there in the Mountains of Shadow age long, and he specifies that still she was there, who was there before Sauron and before the first stone of Barad-dûr. Now, Sauron had been living in Mordor on and off since the Second Age, so that puts Shelob back at least 4,000 years or so at a minimum. And Tolkien's reference to Shelob's arrival at her lair after flying from ruin in the Dark Years suggests that she had escaped from Beleriand before its destruction at the end of the First Age. The Mirkwood spiders, in turn, are Shelob's own descendants. Tolkien specifies there in that same paragraph, Far and wide, her lesser broods, bastards of the miserable mates, her own offspring, that she slew, spread from glen to glen, from the Efelduath to the eastern hills, to Dal Guldur and the fastnesses of Mirkwood. So, as I say, this is an example of a question that can be answered with little speculation or background research, just a careful look at the main text itself. This kind of question is the easiest and simplest to answer, and this is the main kind of thing that I'm involved in doing in my lectures themselves. Now, the second category of questions are those that can only be answered by appealing to Tolkien's other background writings. Thanks to the diligence of Christopher Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, we have a remarkable wealth of information about Tolkien's thought process and the development of his ideas. We have access to minor works unpublished in his lifetime, earlier and intermediate drafts of his major works, later reflections on his works after they were published, and his letters in which he answered questions about his works. 
These are the books, by the way, that I have featured on the second page of my Tolkien bookstore on my website. If you're interested in buying copies of these books, you should check it out. I've tried to gather them all together for you. Anyway, this stuff is great. These writings richly fill out Tolkien's secondary world and provide material to answer many questions. However, when we appeal to this background material, we have to be very careful not to oversimplify things. That is, we can't just look at these sources in an attempt to find out what Tolkien thought about various issues. The problem, of course, is that Tolkien's ideas changed over time. There are often several contradictory answers that can be found in the background writings, because those writings span decades in which Tolkien's stories and ideas were developing and changing. In fact, the main reason that Christopher Tolkien published the wonderful History of Middle-Earth series is to show the progress of Tolkien's thought over time, from his teen years through the years before his death. If, therefore, we go to these works to find out what Tolkien really thought about something, the situation is a complicated one. We can see in some cases that Tolkien thought one thing in the original version, something else by the time he got to the published version, say of The Lord of the Rings, and then another thing later on after he reflected further about it. Do we decide that one of these, for some reason, is more authoritative? I mean, often it's simplest to sort of take the published version as the kind of mainstream one, but it's complicated. Sometimes the amount of information we have makes things less clear rather than more. Now, my own approach to these background writings is the same as my approach to the main texts. We need to read them carefully and look thoughtfully at the patterns we can see. Take, for instance, the comments I made in my last podcast about the different accounts Tolkien gives of the origins of orcs. I explained the most commonly known and mainstream one, the one from the Silmarillion. That's the one that Christopher chose as the most prominent and representative theory that Tolkien had, so I chose that one to dwell on. The fact that he had other contradictory theories, however, suggests an interesting conclusion, as I explained. It suggests that Tolkien was dissatisfied with the story and why, and that, I think, is more important than simply citing other versions. As I say, I want to step back and see the overall pattern of Tolkien's thought as much as possible. Okay, so that's two kinds of questions, one that can be answered out of the main text themselves, and one that can be answered with help from the background material assembled by Christopher Tolkien. The third category of question is the most controversial one. I'm talking about questions that can only be answered by pure speculation, questions that Tolkien never addressed directly in any of his writings, questions which force us just to extrapolate from what he did write. Examples of such questions might be things like, where are the Entwives, really? Or, a question recently posted on my discussion board, what happens to one of the Maiar, like Saruman, Sauron, or a Balrog, when they die? Consider that, by the way, a little teaser for that question, which I shan't actually answer here, uh, but I will get back to it later on. This is clearly the shakiest ground that we operate on when we're talking about Tolkien. There is a danger, of course, when we're speculating wildly, that we will end up simply you know, writing something ourselves, contributing our own two cents to the creation of Middle-earth. Obviously, we need to be careful to maintain a clear line between writing fanfiction and doing Tolkien scholarship. Now, I'm not here commenting on whether writing fanfiction is a good thing or a bad thing, only that we mustn't confuse it for analysis of Tolkien's work. At the end of the day, he only said what he said, and he just didn't answer every possible question. On one level, though, I find it really fascinating in itself that people tend so often to ask this kind of question. With most writers, if there are these kinds of mysteries or apparent contradictions, readers tend to see them as blemishes or errors, or at least things that, you know, needed a bit more thought. You know, a reader might think, gosh, the author really fell asleep at the switch there, what a slipshod piece of work. With Tolkien, though, readers just don't talk like that. Instead, people ask questions with cheerful confidence that an answer must actually exist, even if Tolkien never gave one. It's almost as if people forget or half-forget that this world is entirely fictional 
that it's just the invention of some guy, who may simply have not thought about all those issues. Now, it's easy enough to look at these tendencies and get all snooty and say, people, get a grip. Middle-earth doesn't exist. It's a figment of Tolkien's imagination. If he doesn't explain something, there's no explanation. Write your own story if you want to answer it. Yikes. But the fact is, this is not how Tolkien himself reacted to these kinds of questions. I get the impression from his letters that Tolkien rather liked this kind of question, for the simple reason that it spoke to the success of his subcreation, the foundational undertaking of his fiction. This kind of question shows that readers are able to invest in his secondary world and give it what he calls secondary belief. The fact that anomalies, puzzles, and inconsistencies tend on the whole to increase curiosity rather than disrupt a reader's engagement with Tolkien's fiction shows that Tolkien's secondary world is working. It's a very high compliment to Tolkien's literary undertaking, and one that he would value very highly. One must also admit that Tolkien's own discussion of subcreation in general and the tone in which he talked about his own secondary world strongly encouraged the kind of speculation that I'm talking about. What I mean is, Tolkien tended to describe good storytelling not as invention, but as discovery. He often talked about his stories, characters, and the secondary world in general not as things that he made up out of his own head, but things that he found and people that he met. I talked about this in my intro lecture when I discussed Tolkien's metaphor of the Tree of Tales in On Fairy Stories. In order to explain this issue fully, I'd have to get much more into Tolkien's concept of myth and myth-writing, which is what he was trying to do in his fiction. Remember when Frodo says to Gandalf in Rivendell that he didn't know that Strider was one of the people of the Old Kings, that he thought he was only a ranger? Gandalf, of course, responds, Only a ranger? My dear Frodo, that's just what the rangers are! Tolkien's response might have been similar, had someone responded to one of this kind of question by saying, Get a grip, it's only a story. For Tolkien, stories, and myths in particular, have, in one sense, more of truth about them than any purely historical account. But enough about this subject for now. Myths and myth-making are very important topics, but too important to digress onto in the tail end of a podcast. They deserve their own treatment, and I'll talk about them more another time. Anyway, another reason why I think it's defensible to cautiously play the game of filling in holes in Tolkien's subcreation is that it's a game that he played himself all the time. And in saying that, I don't mean that he just worked to fix mistakes that he made or to patch gaps in his own thinking. His approach to working out apparent problems or contradictions was much more like that of an outsider than that of an inventor. Remember that I said that it's important to make sure that we're not making up our own stories, but rather just reading carefully what Tolkien has already written and trying to draw logical conclusions from that. Tolkien himself often seemed to approach things in exactly this way. Let me give an example. In The Hobbit, when Bilbo and the dwarves see the trolls fire in the distance and are debating whether or not to go investigate, those arguing against investigation of the fire point out, Travelers seldom come this way now. The old maps are no use. Things have changed for the worse, and the road is unguarded. They have seldom heard of the king round here. The implication of this statement is that there is, in fact, a king, who has technical jurisdiction over this region, but who is far away and thus ignored by people like wandering trolls. This impression is amplified in the first edition text, which instead of the reference to the traveler seldom coming this way says, Policemen never come so far, and the mapmakers have not reached this country yet. Now, when Tolkien wrote this passage before 1937, he had not yet worked out the history of Eriador and the fall of the northern line of Numenorean kings. Therefore, when he later did so, he had a contradiction on his hands. The Hobbit talks like there is a king, when the history of the region as it later develops says that there has been no king for a long time. So what does Tolkien do? 
Another author might have just gone back and deleted that bit in The Hobbit. In fact, he had a perfect opportunity to do that when he actually released a revised version of The Hobbit decades later. But he didn't. Instead, he inserts a reference to it in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings. In section 3, the one titled Of the Ordering of the Shire, he says... There remained, of course, the ancient tradition concerning the High King at Fornost, or Norbury as they called it, away north of the Shire. But there had been no king for nearly a thousand years, and even the ruins of King's Norbury were covered with grass. Yet the hobbits still said of wild folk and wicked things, such as trolls, that they had not heard of the king. For they attributed to the king of old all their essential laws, and usually they kept the laws of free will, because they were the rules, as they said, both ancient and just. So you see, Tolkien has kept that same phrase word for word and made it into a general proverb. Tolkien has thus left everything just the way it is, but finds a way to account for the apparent discrepancy in a way that's consistent with the things that he'd already written. Tolkien did this kind of thing all the time. Sometimes, uh, for instance, if he noticed he had misspelled a word in an earlier edition, rather than just correcting the misspelling, he'd devise an entire linguistic theory about how and why the local dialect of that particular region had developed in such a way as to create that particular and unusual alternate spelling. My point is, Tolkien himself encouraged this kind of investment in his secondary world, not just rewriting it or tinkering with it, but filling in holes and explaining contradictions by drawing conclusions or making inferences sometimes very complicated ones. For this reason, I can't imagine that he would disapprove of our setting ourselves to do the same kind of thing. As I've said, we do need to make sure that what we're doing is drawing logical conclusions from what Tolkien has written, and not just making stuff up ourselves. But, so long as we're clear on that, and equally clear about exactly how speculative such answers are, I have no problem talking about some of these issues. Well, I feel better, and thanks for listening to me as I've unburdened my conscience here. Now I can go on to answer more of your questions without worrying that any of you are thinking that I am making claims to be definitive, or worse, to be the mouth of Tolkien. Thanks a lot, and tell all your friends to get ready for the big release of Hobbit Lecture Number 4. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.